I'm Dr. Jess Cap, and this is Storybook Earth. Welcome to Storybook Earth, a podcast that fuses science and storytelling, two of my favorite things, to bring you vibrant tales of notable Earth features, phenomena, and places, and the geological processes that make them what they are. From the tiniest minerals in the oldest rocks on Earth, to the giant asteroid that killed the dinosaurs, from the strange and mysterious trenches of the ocean, to the romanticized top of Mount Everest, the stories in the chapters of Earth's long and beautiful history are all around us, just waiting to be told. Popping a Concord grape out of its skin and into my mouth is one of my favorite sensations. They're impossible to find where I live now, in the cactus-dotted landscape of the American Southwest. But as a kid, I knew I would taste them every year. At the end of Indian summer, when the cold clicked in and the leaves were in full autumnal fire. The Grape Festival in Naples, New York was a fixture in my relationship with my father, something special we did together to celebrate fall in upstate, which is a magical thing. The town of Naples sits at the south end of Canandaigua Lake, one of the 11 Finger Lakes of upstate New York. These lakes were left behind at the end of the last ice age as the ice retreated north roughly 10,000 years ago. They are long and linear, small scars in the landscape carved underneath moving glaciers and filled with meltwater as the climate warmed. If you ever take a dip in a Finger Lake, you are swimming in a pool of Earth history, water that once turned solid because of changes in Earth's orbital shape the tilt of her axis, and the wobbling of that axis as she spins in space like a top. Whizzing across the farmland between my hometown of Rochester, which sits on the southern shore of Lake Ontario, one of the five Great Lakes, and the festival in Naples, I had no idea that the knobs of land around me were deposited as ice slithered by, piling up debris at its edges. I didn't know that the giant boulders perched in random locations resting on rock that is completely unlike them, were geological hitchhikers. Nomads of the geosphere carried far distances by glacial ice before being dropped off as that ice melted away. Even the Great Lakes, the largest group of freshwater lakes on Earth, are remnants of the last ice age, so vast and so deep that they often behave like the sea. I didn't know when the ice ages happened or when they ended, or that the water I swam in during summer vacations originated in the Arctic Ocean and migrated over a thousand miles south to become Lake Ontario. In fact, I knew nothing of geology. I had yet to discover that I was destined to fall in love with the wonders of our planet. For the short hour it took to drive home from the festival, Dad and I would sit, a large basket of purple grapes between us, squeezing them into our mouths and tossing the skins out the window as the blazing red and gold leaves blurred past. I would breathe in the air, crisp with a promise of winter, my favorite time of year, buried somewhere within. Back then, before climate change shifted the seasons, you could count on Thanksgiving to be the first snow of the year, and never was Christmas without fresh snowfall. That lake effect snow so common in that part of the world is created as the frigid Canadian air blows south over the Great Lakes, coming in contact with the relatively warmer lake water and causing moist air to rise and begin cloud formation. 
those clouds move on to land and unleash heavy loads of snow. This snow was an important and special part of my childhood. Without the Great Lakes, there would have been a lot less sledding, ice skating on local ponds, and waking up to a blanket of white on Christmas morning. As Dad and I drove home from the festival, the wind felt good rustling my hair through the open window, and before the day was over, we would have eaten the whole basket of plump, juicy grapes, and my stomach would settle into a sweet ache. I would doze off, coming in and out of sleep, my dad singing quietly next to me, tapping his calloused fingers on the steering wheel. Those toughened calluses on his left hand were the fossils left behind by his guitar playing. The landscape I lived in was in itself a fossil, a remnant of a natural phenomenon so incredible that it had covered my hometown in roughly two miles of ice. Two miles? That's over 10,000 feet of solid ice. So what drove that ice age? And why have we had about 30 of them in the last two million years of Earth history? It's all related to Earth's subtly changing relationship with the sun. Earth's orbital shape, the tilt of her axis, and the wobbling of that axis as she spins in space like a top. Believe it or not, these three things are not constant. They change cyclically over time periods of tens to hundreds of thousands of years, altering the way Earth is receiving incoming solar radiation, AKA sunlight. It is solar radiation that warms our planet and changes in the amount of distribution of solar radiation can sometimes align in such a way that Earth is plunged into what we call an ice age. They have to combine in just the right way for it to happen, but it happens. A Serbian scientist named Milenkovic proposed that changes in orbital shape, axial tilt, and wobble led to long-term climate changes such as the ice ages, and so we call these the Milenkovic cycles. In middle school science, we learn that the planets of our solar system orbit around the sun in elliptical or oval-shaped orbits, which is basically true. But how elliptical Earth's orbit is changes over time. We call this eccentricity. Sometimes Earth is revolving around the sun in a nearly circular orbit, and other times it's a bit more oval-shaped. The shape changes because of gravitational pull on the Earth by the large gas giant planets Jupiter and Saturn. A perfectly circular orbit has an eccentricity of zero. Today, Earth's orbital eccentricity is about 0.0034, almost a perfect circle, which means that the distance between the Earth and the Sun is nearly the same in summer and in winter making for fairly even summer and winter seasons in terms of length of time. Earth's orbit shape is sometimes about 0.058, which is still only slightly elliptical, but causes a bit more variation in seasons. In itself, this variation is too small to have any effect on annual seasonal climates, but when combined with changes in axial tilt and wobble, can push Earth toward colder conditions. Earth's orbital shape changes on a cycle of about 100,000 to 400,000 years. Now, let's talk about Earth's tilted axis, or what we call 
obliquity. When Earth is actually closest to the Sun in its nearly circular orbit, 147 million kilometers, or about 91 million miles between them. But during Northern Hemisphere winter, the shortest day of which is December 21st, Earth's northern hemisphere is tilted away from the sun. We get less direct sunlight in the northern hemisphere during our winter than we do during our summer, which is centered around June 21st, when the northern hemisphere is tilted toward the sun. This is opposite for the southern hemisphere, of course, where December 21st is their longest day of summer. All of this is to say that if Earth were not tilted on its axis of rotation, if it was oriented vertically, straight up and down like a perfectly upright spinning top, we would not have seasons at all. The equator would get all the direct sunlight all of the time, and there would be no variation in when the northern hemisphere and southern hemisphere got more direct sunlight over the course of a year, hence no seasons. Like the shape of Earth's orbit, the amount of tilt is not constant. At times, Earth is tilted about 22.1 degrees off of vertical, and at other times it is tilted about 24.5 degrees off of vertical. The more Earth is tilted off of vertical, the more direct sunlight the northern hemisphere receives during its summer. Think of it this way. If Earth was tilted 90 degrees off vertical, Earth would be lying flat on its side, and during northern hemisphere summer, the North Pole would be getting all of the direct sunlight. Today we're at about 23 degrees of tilt. Decreased obliquity, or a lower tilt, leads to milder seasons, for example, cooler summers. This can therefore affect how ice grows at, say, the North Pole, which could lead to the buildup of thick ice sheets and the spread of ice down from the north and across the continent of North America, like what happened during the last ice age when New York was covered with nearly two miles of ice. Changes in obliquity occur on 41,000-year cycles. The third of our Ice Age trifecta is what we call axial precession, which is essentially the wobble of Earth as it spins like a top in space. Remember spinning a top as a kid, watching it gradually slow down and begin to wobble precariously before it fell down to the floor where it finally came to rest? Well, the Earth is basically doing the same thing as it rotates on its axis, but Earth's wobble is due to tidal forces, the result of gravitational pull on the Earth from both the Sun and the Moon, which causes Earth to bulge a bit at the equator. The wobbling of Earth in space means that in about 13,000 years, the direction of our axial tilt will be flip-flopped from what it is today. The northern hemisphere, which has more moderate seasonal variations, will end up seeing more extremes in solar radiation and experience hotter summers. Precession also shifts the beginning of seasons slightly earlier over time. In addition, Earth's entire orbital ellipse wobbles, again, thanks to the tug of Jupiter and Saturn. And these double whammy wobblings together cause changes in seasonal extremes that occur on a cycle of about 23,000 years. Now the collective effects of these three dynamic properties of Earth and space are responsible for the 30 or so glacial and interglacial periods Earth has experienced over the last 2 million years. 
They can cause up to 25% change in the incoming solar radiation in the regions of our planet located between roughly 30 and 60 degrees of the equator. My hometown of Rochester, New York, sits at a latitude of 43.16 degrees north, well within the swath of Earth that feels these seemingly small changes that can ultimately have a great effect. Based on the timing of the cycles, we should be on our way into another ice age. With rapid global warming, it is unclear if this next ice age will prevail. Some scientists predict it will be delayed or thwarted altogether. But the natural state of things would put us into another glacial in about 1500 years. While we won't be here to see it, there's something comforting about the thought of ice sheets growing thick in the Arctic, where today polar bears struggle to find enough sea ice surface for seal hunting. There's something poetic about that ice finding its way south to carve new landscapes and create new lakes, dropping new rock passengers when it ultimately melts away again. Maybe it's the incessant heat I experience now in my home of Tucson, Arizona, that makes me hopeful that the Milankovitch cycles will prevail over human-induced climate change, pushing interglacial to glacial again. My dad and I fished in Lake Ontario, or along the Genesee River that emptied into the lake a lot when I was a kid. Sometimes we rented a rowboat or a canoe and paddled out into the river, letting its gentle current carry us along as we cast it into its brown waters. In places upstream, that river raged over waterfalls, actively downcutting into rocks laid down about 300 to 400 million years ago in shallow seas that covered much of the continent. Trapped in those layers were the bits and pieces of ancient life forms, shells, exoskeletons, teeth, hard parts that had been buried on the ocean floor and preserved for millions of years. If only I had known that just 30 feet or so below the bottom of the boat I floated in, the dead bodies of trilobites and snails and clams lay frozen in time. That as we drifted north, we were floating over older and older rocks that had been tilted and folded. That the river itself, while changing the surface of the planet as it moved, had also itself been changed by the ebb and flow of ice long before I was born. Maybe if I had known the beautifully complex story of my surroundings, surroundings that to me were just my plain old boring hometown, I would have found my curiosity about our planet as a young girl. Maybe I would have asked questions or spent more time outdoors or carried a small hammer to chip away at the flat-lying black and brown rocks that seemed so ordinary to me and yet were harboring tales of long ago life. There's so much to find if you know where to look. Earth's history is written in its rock layers, its landscapes, its fossils, and even its ice sheets. And it's a really good read. My neighborhood and yours, my home state and yours, my country and yours, all carry the chapters of Storybook Earth. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. If you did, please consider subscribing, liking, writing a review, and sharing this with a friend or two. Thanks to our listeners and supporters. Special thanks to Michaela Moore for music, sound editing, and design, and to Pierce Ware for the artwork. The Geology Podcast Network is sponsored by Traveling Geologist. Thank you.